Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today God speaks to us from Psalm 133. How good and pleasant is it it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Irmon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, fam, I got to tell you something. First world problems, but you're not going to believe this. Today, because my iPad completely crapped out on me this morning, for the first time in like a decade, I'm preaching off of paper. It feels like the 1900s around here right now for me. Um, so I'm just going to give you a heads up. This is so different. For, I know that sounds so stupid, and for some of you that might be like, get over yourself, but it is... Throwing me off, so just a heads up in case I'm a little distracted with my paper. Um, It's definitely different, but good to be with you all. Uh, If you have been with us, we have been uh, in a series uh, throughout the fall that we've called uh, Life in the Psalms. Uh, If you've been with us, we've been focusing on uh, the Psalms, but in particular, we've been looking at various Psalms uh, that focus on spiritual disciplines. Uh, And we've taken the last 10 weeks or so trying to consider what it looks like for us to deepen our walks with the Lord through these spiritual disciplines. And uh, this will be the final week uh, of that series. Uh, And what we've attempted to do, what we've wanted to see happen is that through uh, these, the season, through these uh, different spiritual uh, disciplines, we've wanted to try to assist as best we can to help us all learn what it means to have healthy rhythms in our lives And one of the ways that we've attempted to do that is by uh, creating something that we've called a rule of life. Uh, That rule of life looks at some uh, very specific spiritual disciplines uh, that we want to encourage. There's probably far more than what we've listed there that would be good, but these are a few key ones. Uh, And so if you, over this season, haven't really uh, had a chance to take a look at that, we'd encourage you, very much highly commend that rule of life to you. You can go to the website and check out those resources that are there. Um, But what we've really wanted to ultimately be able to provide is uh, the resources that help not only us uh, individually, but for us together as a church community uh, to be considering what it means to grow together in these disciplines. Uh, And that actually is the context for this final uh, discipline, this final rhythm that we'll be looking at today, which is the idea of community. What does it actually look like to be in community with others, particularly within Christian community? Uh, I want to try to present to you a bit of a, of a positive case for Christian community uh, and consider why it's so important to, why it's important, why it's vital to the life of the Christian. Uh, and so with that in mind, let's consider several things. Uh, first, let's consider the tension of community, the refreshment of community, the cost of community, and then finally, the foundation for community. I've got four points, so buckle up. Um, one of the things I'll just start here by saying is if, uh, if you were with us several weeks ago, we began, guys, my mic's a little bit 
uh, hot. Maybe uh, bring it down a little bit. Um, several weeks ago, we considered what it's, uh, what the community looks like in the context of a worshiping community. If you were with us during our week on uh, corporate worship, we considered the fact that Christians are not called to be Christians on their own. Uh, that the Bible always assumes that Christians are in relationship with one another, uh, which is why we have the church. And so I want to just encourage you first to consider the, um, if you want to consider more fully what it looks like to be part of a worshiping community, to go to that sermon, uh, to get a little bit more of a depth there. But what I want to look at today is I actually want to look at the nature of community, not just the concept, but what's at the core of Christian community, and that is the notion of unity. What does it actually require for Christians to be in community with one another? Well, the answer to that question would be unity. And so today, let's consider uh, this idea of community through the lens of unity by first considering the tension. Um, To begin, let's look at verse 1. So verse 1 tells us this. It says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, In a moment, we're going to continue. We're going to see why it is so good and why it's so important. But to begin, I want to first note that 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 idea of being in unity is actually an extraordinarily difficult thing to see realized. Uh, And if you'll allow me to do so, I want to let the the cynical side of Justin peek out just a little bit. Just a little, I promise. But I have a feeling that maybe some of you uh, experience the tension that I'm about to present similar to, uh, to myself. Uh, the notion of community and the, this idea, the central idea of unity is actually really frustrating because often in this, uh, the landscape in which we find ourselves, the cultural moment that we speak of, we actually hear a lot about community. We hear a lot about uh, unity. And sometimes I get a little bit jaded over hearing so much about it. Um, both community and unity, uh, they're core values of our church. They mean a lot to us. But the concepts, culturally speaking, have kind of been watered down. They've kind of become meaningless. Uh, And as a result, whenever I hear people start talking about unity and community, depending on what they're talking about, it can feel super cringe, as the kids might say. I don't know if the kids still say that, but it can feel super cringe to hear about these notions of community. It's just become such, uh, um, such a meaningless thing at times. And I think the reason why it's often... Um, so meaningless and difficult to to talk about is it's because the kind of unity and community that we often hear about is actually not the kind of unity and community that the Bible is talking about. Uh, The Bible has very different contexts and uh, speaks about it in different ways than we typically tend to think about it. Often when we hear about unity and community, we actually uh, end up thinking more about what some might call uniformity, which is very different than the notion of unity. Uh, Pretty recently, I was doing some research and writing on uh, one theologian's issue with contemporary life, and he was talking about this tension between unity and uniformity. And this is what he says. He argues that unity is the ultimate goal of all the ways of God, and that the deep meaning of the whole divine revelation is that the ways of God lead from all this diversity toward unity. In other words, what God is accomplishing in the world in part, is bringing a sense of unity back to what had been fractured and broken. And so God very much is working toward unity, especially amongst his people. However, then he goes on to argue that the world also strives for unity, but that as a result of sin, the world has plagiarized God's unity 
And as a result, it's flattened all meaningful distinctions amongst uh, God's diverse uh, creation and brought instead, not unity, but a uniformity. And the irony of a lot of modern-day approaches to unity, and the reason why we can maybe at times get jaded over the concept, is that while it emphasizes a desire for there to be uh, diversity and unity, it often requires one uh, to become uniform in order to find some measure of inclusion. We actually don't know what it's like to be diverse and yet unified in the midst of that diversity. Often, the, the, um, what we will find is that if you want to fit in, you have to adhere to whatever is most important to that group. Maybe you have to adhere to a particular political ideology or need to adhere to some kind of cultural sensibility or some personal preference or some socioeconomic status or more. Whatever the categories might be, if you want to fit in, you need to actually find yourself uh, becoming uniform to whatever that group might be. And if you have ever been... Uh, in a situation where you're in a diverse group, you might very well feel that kind of tension, that if I want to fit in, I need to just be like everyone else that's around me. And that sounds very high school, but it's so common in so many different places, and the church very much is guilty of this as well. And if you want to be accepted into my group, then you need to adhere to these particular theological convictions or these particular cultural sensibilities. And just to give you one of many examples of this, uh, multicultural and multi-ethnic churches run into this issue all the time. In fact, one of the biggest critiques of multicultural, multi-ethnic churches is that those churches tend to have a, um, a dominant culture that exists and that if one desires to fit into that church community, you need to submit yourself to whatever that, domin uh, that dominant culture might be. And so there are a room like this, right? We are very much a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. You look around a room like this, it can very easily simply be a diversity of complexion, but no real diversity of culture or experience. Again, this is one of the, the big critiques of multi-ethnic churches, that something like 75% or more of multi-ethnic, multicultural churches are led by, for example, white leaders who create white-dominant culture churches that require everyone in the pew to submit to that dominant culture if they desire to be part of that multi-ethnic congregation. Now, I don't say that to degrade multi-ethnic churches. We are one. But I simply say it to say it's a very real tension. How does everyone be able to, how can everyone bring their experiences, their culture to bear in a church community that is diverse like ours? And I also don't say that uh, to say that there are no cultural expectations that one might have stepping into particular environments. It is absolutely impossible to be able to come together in unity without everybody at some measure, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, at some measure, sacrificing something that is meaningful to them. It's impossible for a group of people to come together without giving up something. But I bring all of this up simply to raise the point that it's hard. There is a tension, and we need to be conscious of the fact that as we, as people of God, as Christians attempt to come together in unity, it's not going to be easy, and at times, it just becomes a uniformity. If you want to fit in here, you better fall in line. You know, another, another way that this can uh, uh, tends to play out 
and I'm utilizing the multi-ethnic, multicultural thing, I think because it's the easiest for us to recognize. But another way that this can play out is also in the colorblind approach to multiculturalism, multi-ethnic unity. Because what colorblindness does is it simply flattens all meaningful distinctions among us, right? Attempts to not even pay attention to them. Now, if within colorblindness, we simply mean that we don't want to treat people differently based on what they look like or their background, fine, that's great. But colorblindness that says, oh, I don't, I don't see color, I don't notice any of our differences, to emphasize that is actually incredibly dishonoring to the wonderful tapestry of experiences that are present amongst God's people. I mean, not only is colorblindness in this sense completely impossible, regardless of what anybody says, we notice the differences amongst each other. So not only is it completely impossible, but it's also antithetical to the eschatological vision, right? The, the, the vision of things to come that we see in the book of Revelation, where every tribe, nation, and tongue are present, that there are differences amongst the people of God, even in heaven, as they worship Jesus upon his throne. Jesus sees our differences. And so any attempt at flattening those differences is a rejection of what Jesus has deemed beautiful. And frankly, again, I think a lot about this because this is very much our congregation. How do we honor well the diversity of this room in a way that allows people to bring their uniqueness to the community without creating uh, differences that separate us, but rather draw us together? And in the context of biblical community, we don't want to be a people that are flattened, that don't have that kind of differentiation. And I'm focusing on this cultural multi-ethnic piece, again, because it's probably the easiest way to address this, but there are numerous ways that we can approach this, numerous things that could potentially divide us. Right, in this room, we have a variety of different ways that we were raised we have a variety of different political views, socioeconomic status, even worship style preferences in this room. And there may even be some theological views that are distinct and different. And all of those differences are why unity can be so hard. And so, with all of that said, what then can we do to pursue a true unity, right? Not a uniformity that flattens everything about who we are, but a true unity that allows us to bring the diversity, but in such a way that it draws us together, doesn't drive us apart. Well, that in mind, one of the things that I think we can do is to approach this idea of unity from a Christian perspective and see the hope and the joy that's actually present when that unity actually begins to occur, which brings us secondly to the refreshment of community. So this psalm uh, is a, part of a series of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, these psalms, which were written by uh, King David and uh, Solomon, these were songs that were sung uh, on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which was the holy city. Uh, Jerusalem uh, was on a hill, and as Jewish travelers traveled to Jerusalem for one of the uh, annual festivals, they would sing these songs as they ascended to the hill. That's why they're called the Songs of Ascent. So this song was actually a song of celebration for the Jewish people. What kind of unity would allow them to sing songs together about it? Well, in this celebration, there are two metaphors in the psalm 
And I don't think immediately hit us uh, the same way that it would hit the original hearers of the song, but each of the metaphors actually remind us of the significance of the unity and the community for which they sing. Let me highlight both of them for a moment, because I actually think they're very helpful for us as we're considering unity in community. So the first thing that we see there is in verse 2. In verse 2, it says that this unity is like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. What in the world does that mean? Well, oil in the Old Testament, it represented richness, joy, health, refreshing. Uh, It was a sign that the Spirit was upon someone when they were anointed for service. Plus, Aaron, especially as the, the robe is being described here, Aaron is being presented as the priest, the high priest here. The priests, they were those that made sacrifices and represented the people before God. And the oil was a reminder of the covenant promises that God made with his people a covenant that brings riches and joy and health and refreshment, but also brings forgiveness and mercy and grace. Some have also pointed out the importance of the oil being poured downward and covering the clothing. You know, for the high priest, their articles of clothing, and I won't get into this fully, but each article of their clothing actually had a lot of meaning. And one of those pieces was their breastplate. And the breastplate was representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing the high priest was the mediator of this unity between God's people and God himself. And the downward pour of the oil meant that this unity was from God, mediated by the high priest as a gift to his people. The last thing just to note about the oil is that the oil was also used as a perfume. It was fragrant. And so it would have been incredibly attractive to all those who smelled it, smelled the aroma. The other metaphor that we see here is not just the oil, but we also see in verse 3, it says, It is as if the dew of Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. From there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Again, what's that? Well, Mount Hermon was a large mountain, and the, the dew on that mountain was actually often described as a refreshing river that flowed and brought life. But then also you have this other mountain, Mount Zion, which was further south, which was known to be a much drier mountain. And so the image here is that the dew of Mount Hermon brings refreshment to that which was dry. And as you can imagine, in a water in a desert climate was vital. And it was miraculous when it just showed up. It was a gift of God. And so in that sense, unity amongst God's people was also a gift, and a gift that was refreshing and life-giving. So if I were to take all that I just said and kind of summarize those two metaphors in one sentence, it might sound something like this. That the unity being described in this psalm is a life-giving, refreshing gift of God given to his people that is provided to them through their high priest and becomes an attractive witness to those who are in contact with it. That's what unity is. That's what unity ought to be amongst God's people. And so if that's the case, right, if unity is supposed to be life-giving, a refreshing gift of God, if it's supposed to be an attractive witness to everyone who experiences it and, and smells the beauty of its aroma, why don't we often experience that kind of unity? One that, again, takes the meaningful diversity amongst us. 
Why don't we, uh, why don't we experience that, that beautiful diversity in this life-giving, refreshing unity? Why don't we experience a kind of unity often that makes us want to sing in such a way that it, that song itself becomes a witness to the world? Well, it's because the kind of unity being described here is also extremely costly. And it's often a cost that we do not want to pay. Which brings us thirdly to the cost of community. Uh, Thabiti Anabuele, who is a pastor in uh, a church down in D.C., he once put it this way, and I've shared this quote with you before, but I think about it pretty regularly because it's such a, a wonderful and perfect way to describe the kind of what's necessary for us to experience the kind of unity that we're talking about. And I have it here for you to follow along, but let me read this for, for us. He said this. He says, If there is to be a fuller experience of unity, the cost will include humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word, humbling ourselves to worship with brethren on all sides of the issue, humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish, humbling ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding, humbling ourselves to say, I was wrong, or you were right, or please forgive me, or I didn't know that, and humbling ourselves to forgive. Because without humility, there will be too much pride for practical unity. Humility, that's the cost of unity. Is it too high a cost? I mean, there's so much that he hits on there, but let me draw out a few specific things. The first thing that he talks about there is that in order for us to experience this kind of unity, there's a humility that needs to come and a humbling, first, he says, where we humble ourselves beneath God's word. That true humility and unity amongst God's people cannot happen unless we are submitting ourselves to the same authority. It just can't. So submission to God's word is actually key if we're going to experience a kind of unity that makes us want to sing. The other thing that he draws out there is that humble, we need to humble ourselves to fellowship with brethren on all sides. And I wonder, when I think about that, do we regularly seek out relationships with others who are very different than ourselves? You know, I've said this before, but I find it fascinating how diverse our congregation is, not just ethnically, racially, but uh, in just about every kind of way that you could imagine. I find it fascinating, fascinating that also, over the, over the years, uh, there have been those that have assumed that we're actually much more like each other than I think we actually are. I think there's probably, been, there's probably some of us in the room that assume that many of the other people think like us, live like us, experience life like us. Uh, and if that's the case, if you think that's true, you might want to really widen your pool of people that you can connect with. There's a wide variety of diversity in this room. But I wonder, do we have fellowship with brethren on all sides of whatever issue we might be thinking about? Another thing that he says there is that we're to humble ourselves to tell the truth without varnish. True unity cannot help happen without some measure of truth-telling, especially when tensions exist. If there are tensions, we need to be honest, graciously honest with one another. Another thing that he says is that we need to humble ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding. That strikes me a lot too. I mean, in a time where debate and conversation happen in sound bites and tweets, are we really listening to one another? I think listening has become a lost virtue. We're so quick to speak, so slow to listen. 
And unity won't happen unless we listen well. Another thing that he says there is a humbling ourselves to say, I was wrong, or you were right, or please forgive me, or I didn't know that. I mean, I do wonder, just in general, how easy it is, uh, how easy or not easy is it for us to say, I was wrong, or please forgive me. You know, so often we are divided simply because we can't ask for forgiveness. In true unity, community requires postures of forgiveness. Another, uh, uh, another thing that he says there is that we need to humble ourselves to forgive. I mean, it's one thing to ask for forgiveness. It's another thing to actually then forgive others who have maybe in some way hurt us. As broken, fallen people, we're always going to hurt each other. But Christian unity requires a forgiveness because deep divisions will remain unless we're able to extend that forgiveness. I mean, humility is the way that we will experience unity as Christians within community. Humility is what leads us to experience a unity that's worth singing about. Humility is often at the center of all of our good relationships, but also at the center of uh, relationships amongst God's people. And this should be a draw. I mean, imagine if, if Christians were able to actually experience this kind of unity. Imagine the kind of draw it would be to those in a world that have only experienced division and dissension. I mean, too often, that's what people expect to see. And of course, it's heartbreaking when God's people can't present something different because the cost was too high. Humility was too much. I mean, earlier, I said that often the world's attempts at unity often end up in uniformity because, frankly, the humility necessary for unity is often lacking, both inside and outside the people of God. And for the Christian, we must present another option. We must be able to present a different kind of relationship, a different kind of unity to one another, even amongst the diversity that exists. Not only for the sake of honoring the Lord, but also for the sake of those that exist in a world where they have no concept, no context for what that kind of unity ought to look like. It becomes an opportunity to present hope. And I wonder, once again, is that cost, then, just too high for us? But if we would say, okay, yes, I think it's important that Christians have that sense of unity, that we develop that kind of community, how then do we do it? How do we actually get to the place where we're experiencing that kind of humility necessary? Well, that brings us finally to the foundations of our unity. So in his book... Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis has a, a famous section where he's reflecting on the notion of humility and the extent to which we don't actually know how to recognize it when we see it. That uh, humility is actually so jarring for us when we actually experience it in real time, we don't entirely know what to do with it, uh, let alone how to actually then become that type of person. And he puts it this way. Uh, did I, put, I think I put this one up there for you as well. But he says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all of you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. Here's kind of the, the famous key phrase. 
the humble person. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's what humility looks like. I mean, we struggle to know what true humility looks like, largely because, unlike the person Lewis is talking about, we often do not know what it means to not think about ourselves. I mean, as I was reflecting on that, even when we are thinking about others, isn't it true that we also then look at ourselves and kind of pat ourselves on the back for having thought about others? That we can't stop. We're always looking inward. But humility is not some attempt to degrade ourselves or to treat ourselves as less than others. Rather, humility is actually thinking about others and their good, at times even above our own. And such a feat is aspirational at best. And we very rarely actually experience it. But what do we do when uh, we experience that kind of true humility? I wonder if we've ever considered that if we were to experience that kind of real humility, if we would recognize how deeply it forms us. You know, uh, fairly recently, someone was telling me, sharing an experience that they had, and Frankly, it's not my story to tell, so I'm going to obscure all the details. I'm going to give you the broad kind of strokes of the story. But this person uh, was describing how many years ago, they were this lowly student that was actually charged with picking up a very well-known speaker for uh, a conference. Uh, he was, he was uh, told to go pick up this well-known speaker at, a conference, or at the airport for the conference. And this, uh, for the student... The speaker that he was picking up was someone that he deeply admired. And so as you could imagine, the student was extremely nervous to meet his hero. Uh, But because of some traffic and some mistimed departures, uh, the student ended up being extremely late to pick up this speaker. Uh, And as you could imagine, uh, the speaker uh, who was waiting there for an hour, the, the student was just horrified. At this, right? That he's made this his hero wait. And he was terrified that his hero uh, was going to be upset and what his hero thought of him. And so he was expecting, as he, you know, as he arrived, that the speaker was going to be very upset with him. But when he got there, the speaker was not upset at all, but the speaker was actually very gracious and very kind. And again, while the, the student wanted to crawl into a hole and just die after all of this debacle, the speaker ended up spending the entirety, entirety of their trip, from the airport to where they needed to go, asking the student questions about his life, about his family, about his hopes and his dreams for the future. And all these years later, this person, this student, who's you know, far now from being a student, was reflecting on that experience as a measure of what humility really looks like. When a po- person of great influence and great power uses that power for the good of a person who by all measurement of the world was of no importance whatsoever. That stuck with him. When I think about Lewis's words about humility, when I think about this example of this student, the first thing I think about is how can I become that kind of person with that kind of humility? And I very quickly, when I honestly evaluate myself, I realize how completely impossible that seems to be that kind of person. But one of the things that I think is very striking as we think about what it takes for us to be that kind of person is that when we have a very pure example of someone with that great influence, great power, using that power for the good of someone else who otherwise would not be worth even thinking much about, 
it strikes us in such a way that it does actually encourage us to want to be that kind of person. And in the uh, Philippians, the Apostle Paul actually presents something that I have been reading over all week. It's been something that I've, I've uh, it's one of my favorite passages, but it's also something I've been coming back to quite a bit. It's pretty stunning, and I want to put this in front of you. So in Philippians 2, this is what Paul says. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others about, above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So let me just pause there for a second. So there it is. Right? We're being called and commanded to be humble people. But if that was all that Paul said, that would actually, again, be quite a burden. If all I were to say to you, go be a humble person that thinks about others more than themselves, that would be quite the burden. But then he goes on to give us the foundation or the power for that kind of command. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's what's striking. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate and truest example of humility. Someone with great power, great authority, using that power and authority for the good of others, who by all measure of the world's standards really might not mean much in the grand scheme of things. But here we have Jesus laying his life down for us. But here's the other thing, is that Jesus is not just this example of humility. Because if that's all that Jesus was, we'd never be able to live up to that example. We can't live up to that example. But in the context of unity and community, if our humility, if our humility were the foundations of that unity, again, we'd fail miserably. We'd be left, at best, with a uniformity of the world. But Jesus, he's not just this example of humility, for the sake of unity. Jesus is the foundation of our humility for unity and community. Here's what I mean. In the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has established a people of whom he calls his own. And that people is a people of great diversity who come from different tribes, nations, and tongues. And yet, despite that great diversity, they are one people as a result of what Jesus has accomplished. The humility that Jesus shows us in his life and in his death and in the power of his resurrection, it's that humility that produces the unity amongst God's people. Without that humility of Jesus, all of this talk of unity would be completely impossible because it is not something that we are able to actually create on our own. That just becomes a uniformity. But when we recognize what Jesus has done, in order to make us a people, that for those that come to him in repentance and faith, that he unifies us together. I mean, not only by the power of his spirit are we unified to Jesus, we're also unified to one another. And that idea, right, that cosmic idea of what Jesus has accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection, the unity that comes as a result, doesn't that now sound like a kind of unity worth singing about? I mean, that's the kind of unity that we can worship and declare our praises over because it's been established by our Savior and our Lord, the one who has laid down his life for our sake. I mean, Christian unity, community, exists because 
of humility. And when we experience this humble work of our high priest, Jesus Christ, we can come together and honor the differences that are amongst us without becoming alienated because we recognize what's actually drawn us together is the work of our Savior. And so my prayer would be for us as a church, as we wrestle with all the different tensions that are going to come about what it means to be a diverse people trying to be together in unity, that the one central thing that we would always be able to keep our eyes on that allows us to actually work through those tensions is that we have been brought together as one people because of Jesus and the work that he has accomplished to make us a people. If we can do that, I actually think there's great power in what we can not only see happen amongst us, but back to the earlier point, it becomes a, a beautiful aroma to a world that only knows division, only knows dissension. The church has a wonderful opportunity to present to the world the gracious humbleness of our Savior through the way that we live amongst each other, loving and caring for one another. I pray the Lord would help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your diversity, the tapestry of the different tribes, nations, and tongues, the various experiences of your people. Lord, within this room, there are um, so many differences that exist among us. Differences that might otherwise uh, create division. And the kind of division we'd expect to see in a world full of it. But in this room, Lord, you've presented us with an opportunity to be a diverse people. We're also unified in the way that we humbly love and care for one another. Lord, we cannot do that on our own. We first and foremost, by your Spirit, need to be reminded of what has been accomplished in order for us to be a people which is the work of our Savior, Jesus. And so would you fix our eyes upon him and what he has done? And as we do, would you help us then to be able to, despite tensions that may arise, still nonetheless find a sense of unity in this diversity? And may it truly be a beautiful aroma, not only before you as we worship you, but also to a world looking for, desiring that kind of experience a world full of division, would you allow Redeemer East Harlem to be a small little glimpse of what true humility and unity looks like. Make it so by the power of your spirit among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.